everybody. Welcome to episode 145 of the Man of Screen podcast. I am your host, Mike Zumo, and this episode I'm going to continue my run through the final season of Super Friends, the series called The Superpowers Team Galactic Guardians, and I'll be covering episodes 3 and 4 of that season this week. So at the end, leave you me halfway through my coverage of uh, of this season, and I will be begin with The Dark Side Deception and The Fear which will give us the first televised representation of the murder of the Waynes, which every uh, comics fan who's been watching movies for several decades is arguing that they never need to see again. So that is one episode that I have really been looking forward to just because, you know, knowing this show as I do, I was very curious to see how that would be depicted on what is a children's show when you really think about it. So we're going to look at that in the uh, final segment. Before I get to the business of this week's coverage, I have feedback to address. My feedback here is from Dave McElvenny. Dave is writing in on Man of Screen, episode 134, and Dave writes, Greetings, Mike, and Patrick, Dario, and Brian. I'm glad that you got the glitch in the initial download fix so quickly, and it seems clear that the four of you enjoyed yourselves. My own memory of seeing this movie, I was 27 in 1983, and was enjoying most of Richard Pryor's part as the comedy it was, and enjoying the relationship between Clark and Lana. I've always had a soft spot for both Lana Lang and Donette O'Toole, as well as the evil Superman slash good Clark Kemp part, and just kind of enduring most of the rest, particularly Robert Vaughn's part, even though I generally like Robert Vaughn. The ultimate effect for me was that it was, as you mentioned, two movies, maybe with added vignettes, that didn't really mesh. I was intrigued to hear about the alternate script. Thankfully, the TV series Krypton has given us a good brainiac, and I think Mixias Pitalik is better suited to animation. The novelization, too, sounds rather interesting. I'm sorry I've never seen that anywhere. I've never heard of the idea of the I Love Lucy reference in the movie, where little Ricky wants to have Superman at his birthday party and his mom arranges it. That actually made me smile to hear it. This is very much an early 80s movie and its fascination with computers and the fantastic exaggeration of the power of computers, especially back then which nowadays looks sadly dated to me. Overall, it's a movie of its time, with some good stuff, Lana, Evil Superman, Good Clark, and some of Richard Pryor's comedy, and some not-so-good stuff, the all-powerful supercomputer, Richard Pryor disguised as a military officer, and the lack of payoff for Lorelai's dumb act. But I like it more than I don't. I won't go out of my way to watch it, but if I'm flipping through the channels and I see it, I might stop and watch it. By the way, it's not just Bob Fisher who will have a meltdown if you mention whatever happened to the Man of Tomorrow. Even now, 33 years after I first read it, I hate those books with a deep, raging passion. Do not get me started. Mike, enjoy your vacation. I hope you have some fun planned. Live long and prosper. Dave. So, as always, Dave, thank you for writing in. In uh, the beginning of the letter, the glitch that Dave were referred to is, I don't know, there must have been some problem with the upload when I initially uploaded uh, episode 134, and it just kind of stopped in the middle. So... As soon as uh, David sent me a message about it, I uh, had a few minutes, so I was able to uh, fix that by uploading the proper version to the Two True Freaks website. I don't know what happened there, but I'm glad I was able to fix it easily without uh, any trouble. And Dave uh, seems to be right in line with the rest of us regarding uh, two movies that kind of ran parallel, and then kind of, I think I was the one who said that they kind of crashed into each other at the end, but... You know, like Dave, I kind of like this movie uh, more than I don't. And the novelization does indeed sound interesting. And uh, as you heard a few weeks ago on the Supergirl episode, I still have not read it. And 
honestly, I don't know if I'll get around to reading it. It's probably something that by the time I would get around to reading, I probably would have forgotten about it, all of that. But who knows? And uh, as far as Dave's comments regarding uh, whatever happened to the man of tomorrow, to be totally honest, I think this is the first time I've ever heard Dave say that he hates something. Dave is always uh, so positive about things, even if Dave doesn't like something, which you know, I'm sure there are things Dave doesn't like. I'm not going to say he likes everything, but uh, when Dave, even when Dave doesn't like something, uh, he is uh, very kind in his comments. In a way, I'd really like to get Dave started and uh, just to uh, see the other side of Dave. You know, we all see the you know the positive comments that he sends in in his letters, and uh, you know, Dave enjoys being a positive person. Uh, just to kind of see the other side of Dave would be interesting. But I am not going to uh, get him started. Let's just uh, say that and move on. And there is a uh, Facebook comment in the Man of Screen podcast group from Steve J. Rogers, and uh, Steve writes in and says. As far as I know, bingo isn't a trademark protected name in terms of saying it freely in a broadcast medium. A character on the West Wing had bingo as part of a derisive nickname. Also, Larry David played bingo quite well in an episode of Curb Your Enthusiasm. So, uh, thank you for that uh, little tidbit, Steve. That still doesn't really explain why... Well, I guess it was different from bingo, which is uh, reason enough to turn the thing into jingo. But that's fine. I guess I'll uh, go with that. So, seeing uh, no uh, further feedback anywhere else, I'll take a quick break, play a podcast promo, and then I'll come back with The Dark Side Deception. Hang around, folks. My name is Bob Fisher. And I'm the host of the Superman Forever radio podcast. On the Superman Forever radio podcast, I talk about Superman from 1938 to present day. And in 2018, we celebrate the 80th anniversary of the Man of Steel's first appearance in Action Comics with a full year of new episodes, more episodes, plus new features like The Adventures of Superman When He Was a Boy. Superboy is coming to the Superman Forever radio podcast. Also, the Superman Forever Roundtable Discussion Group, where I gather together some of the best Superman podcasters around, and we talk Superman. So if you want to know why I've been a Superman fan for over 60 years, point your favorite podcatcher to the Superman Forever radio podcast at supermanforever.com. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to start with The Dark Side Deception. The story was by Richard H. Fogel Jr. and Alan Burnett. Teleplay was by Richard H. Fogel Jr. Basically, what this means is that Fogel and Burnett worked the story out together, but Fogel is responsible for the entire script. I guess uh, Burnett didn't do enough or anything with regards to the script to uh, warrant a co-byline for both of them. So, original broadcast date was September 25th, 1985, and our synopsis is brought to you by supermanhomepage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. While the Superpowers team is on a space mission, Space Station has some view, eh, Wonder Woman? Actually, I'm expecting a friend to come by. A friend? 25,000 miles in space? Look, there he is. Wow, the space shuttle. 
right. Piloted by Colonel Steve Trevor, United States Air Force. You're a sight for sore eyes, Angel. These solo flights can get pretty lonely. I've missed you too, Hotshot. How's the mission going? Smooth as silk. I just picked up that damaged defense satellite and now I'm headed for home. That's fast work. Yeah, the brass wants the TC-7 repaired and back in orbit within 48 hours. Sorry I can't stop for coffee, Angel. Maybe next time? Wait a sec. What's this reading? What is it? There's a magnetic disturbance ahead. Holy thunder! Steve, tell me, what's wrong? Some kind of energy field. They witness Steve Trevor and his space shuttle disappear into a Stargate. Darkseid has hijacked the shuttle so he can impersonate Trevor to fool Trevor's friend Diana Prince. This is the mortal Wonder Woman prefers over me. Hard to believe, eh, father? I would say his spirit is worthy of her, but not much else. And substitute a satellite on the shuttle. When Darkseid kidnapped Wonder Woman... Let's go, you, you monster! Monster? I admit I find these features unappealing, but I was led to believe you were somewhat attracted by them. Keep it up, wise guy. Well, no matter. With this molecular reconfigurator, I can easily alter the structure of even the most complex organic molecules. Behold! You certainly went to a lot of trouble to get me here. There are reasons, my dear. Even now, a second, more powerful reconfigurator is hidden inside that satellite. Within the hour, it will be orbiting your planet. Once it becomes operational, the satellite will bathe the Earth with the reconfigurator's awesome power. Never get away with it, you creep! Your boyfriend has spirit, Wonder Woman. Cyborg has noticed how Trevor has an energy field making Batman suspicious. You've been awfully quiet since we left the base, Batman. What's bugging you? Steve's disappearing act. What really happened during those 20 minutes? I think he did hit an energy field, because he looked like he was still wearing some of it. What do you mean? Cyborg saw this weird red aura around him, especially around his eye. Hey, what gives? It's just a hunch, but Wonder Woman may be in serious trouble. And the Superpowers team heads for Darkseid's planet, Apocalypse. Ah, home sweet home. <laughs> Wouldn't you just love to see old Darkseid's face right now? I'm just thankful that you are safe, Steve. Not only that, but we finally have one of Darkseid's transmitters. Uh-oh. It must have had a self-destruct mechanism triggered from Apocalypse. Looks like we made a one-way trip. So, who wants to go back? But you must go back. Darkseid still has the real TC-7. What? <laughs> Darkseid would never expect us to make two visits in the same day. Oh no, here we go again. 
And that's kind of where the uh, synopsis uh, leaves us off, and obviously they save the day. Another episode featuring Darkseid, now many of them like the uh, Legendary Superpowers show. Galactic Guardians will also heavily feature Darkseid as the main threat, although not always. And this season is going a long way to introducing many of the supporting characters from the from the comics, like Steve Trevor, and they explain his relationship with Wonder Woman a little bit. You know, he's calling her Angel, so that should tell just about everybody what they need to know about their relationship. So, but this is a you know a good episode. I have no real complaints. It's a it's a common trope: uh, the villains disguising themselves as uh, somebody familiar to the heroes to accomplish their goals. We've seen that before, and I'm sure we'll see it again. So basically, basically what's happening here is the team is installing a gravity device on a space station, and Robin is there, and I do believe that is the first time we're seeing him this season. We'll see him in the next episode as well. And uh, they're building a space station. So Wonder Woman is expecting a friend to come and visit the space station that they're building, which is interesting because space shuttles are on uh, very rigid schedules usually when they're out in space. There's usually no time for... Uh, quick jaunt to a neighboring space station to visit your girlfriend but apparently uh, steve trevor is on a solo space mission normally there's at least three or four crew members on a space shuttle so just to see uh steve trevor out by himself in the space shuttle like he's taking a sunday drive is kind of strange but i guess if the plot requires it the plot gets what it needs steve is calling her angel which he's been doing for countless decades in the comics so for those of you who don't know the story and i doubt Anyone listening to this does not know the story, but if you don't, I'm going to not assume that everybody knows it. So, Steve Trevor ends up washed on the shores of uh, Themyscira in some, uh, basically his plane crashes there, and that that's how he meets Wonder Woman, and by extension, introduces man to Paradise Island. And there's then there's the tournament, which we've seen in a previous episode of Challenge of the Super Friends, where uh, the Legion of Doom was going back in time to uh, prevent the heroes from fulfilling their destinies. And the rest is kind of history. Wonder Woman goes back to man's world and 70 years, 70 plus years of comics ensue. So that's Steve Trevor. He is, I don't really want to call him uh, Wonder Woman's uh, version of Lois Lane. He is, he's been everything from a pilot to a special forces officer. I think in the comics now he's part of Argus, I think, or some kind of black ops uh, unit. But he's always been a military man and always been quite capable of uh, existing in the world that Wonder Woman seems to live in. So so anyway, as he's piloting his shuttle, Steve is sucked into a Stargate and he's in another dimension or another part of space. The uh, episode really doesn't specify, but his shuttle is hijacked by these robots, which basically form a perimeter around him and pull him into Darkseid's ship. And for those of you who've been paying attention since Darkseid was introduced, he's been wanting to marry Wonder Woman since he appeared at the beginning of the legendary superpowers show. So that makes Steve Trevor the competition. Although uh, Darkseid sees this human as absolutely no competition. The parademons are pretty busy, and apparently the shuttle has defenses against this kind of incursion. As some gas distracts the parademons, then Steve comes out in a kind of a jetpack flowered, jetpack powered flight suit. But Darkseid is uh, quick to respond. The Omega effect knocks Steve out, and Darkseid can t- consider Steve, you know, kind of looking out, checking out the. Uh, the competition, and uh, Kalabak can't figure out why Wonder Woman would prefer Steve over Darkseid. I can only imagine why. I wonder if the fact that Darkseid is the epitome and embodiment of evil in the DC Universe has anything to do with the uh, fact that Wonder Woman does not want to be his bride. And basically because he's been trying to force her into marriage, 
yeah, it's pretty easy to see why Wonder Woman would prefer Steve over Darkseid. Meanwhile, the superpowers team is out searching for the shuttle, which has been fruitless so far, but the shuttle shows back up and all of a sudden comes careening out of control and in a nice looking animation, very smooth, Superman just kind of moves the superpowers jet out of the way, you know, kind of moves it off to the, to the right a little bit, just so it doesn't get sideswiped by the out-of-control shuttle. We also get a little bit of science here, an accurate showing of what it looks like for the shuttle to be entering the atmosphere as the nose grows red from the heat caused by the friction between the shuttle and the, and the Earth's outer atmosphere. Here, it's just the nose that's turning red, but the fire would kind of be a little more, more around the whole thing. Normally, what you see is uh, kind of the flame extending outward from the nose, which kind of a little toward the back, which represents the massive heat being caused by re-entry. I probably explained that very poorly, so I apologize for that. So, in an awesome display of strength, Superman stops the shuttle's descent. I mean, to imagine the kind of strength it takes to stop a plummeting airplane or a space shuttle, for Superman to be able to do these things as easily as he does is pretty amazing. I mean, when you think about it, the shuttle's mass is whatever it is. Then there's the force of gravity pulling it down, giving it its weight. And just, you got to work against all kinds of momentum. So that's why things like what you saw in Superman Returns is probably pretty accurate as to what it would take for Superman to land a, a crashing plane. He can't just muscle it around uh, like you would, say, a car or something. So after Superman does all the heavy lifting, Firestorm pitches in and puts out the fires. So when everybody's on the ground... The uh, person uh, kind of putting himself forth as Steve is very defensive, and Firestorm and uh, Robin, and Cyborg too, mostly Cyborg, are finding something off about him. Cyborg seems to have a special ability in his cybernetic eye. He looks at Steve, and and he can see his eyes glowing purple, and there's a little bit of an aura, and that tells Cyborg that something is up with Steve, and Batman's not buying Steve's story either, and uh, later on, Cyborg reports what he saw on Steve, and while they're in the, he's in the Batmobile with Robin, and Batman wastes absolutely no time in turning the Batmobile around and uh, going to wherever Wonder Woman is, because he senses that she's in trouble. And if you're the viewer, you can tell that there is something wrong with Steve. Well, obviously, we have knowledge that the heroes don't. We already know that this is actually Darkseid, but Darkseid's not doing a very good job posing as Steve, as he's giving Diana Prince, who is Wonder Woman, and this shows Diana in her capacity as a military officer. I believe she was a colonel here. I don't know if that's comics accurate, but maybe it is. Maybe it's not. I have not read nearly enough Wonder Woman comics to or even remember the show that well. I haven't watched it in years to remember if she was, had any kind of military rank or what. But basically, he's giving Diana some crap about what it's taking to uh, repair the satellite. And he's got an attitude with her and then tells her that he's expecting Wonder Woman. And this is the kind of time when I wish I knew what the characters know, because obviously we know that Darkseid doesn't know that Diana Prince is Wonder Woman. But the Steve, because Wonder Woman doesn't really react when Steve says that he's expecting her. So I don't know. It's kind of unclear. Like I said, I really wish uh, we kind of knew more about uh, Steve and Wonder Woman's relationship, because, you know, just from reading comics, I am going to assume that he knows Diana is Wonder Woman. but. This episode does not make it clear. So um, while that's happening, uh, Apocalypse is uh, switching satellites. And then uh, Wonder Woman shows up and sees Steve. And this is when she discovers that Darkseid is uh, 
disguised as Steve, and the first thing she's going to do is sound the alarm. Fortunately, Darkseid shoots her with, with his Omega Beams, and she goes right into the alarm. How's that for your lucky break? And that's when Batman and Robin and Cyborg show up, and uh, Batman <laughs> is trying to rope Darkseid with his bat rope. You know, I kind of wonder, did he really think that was going to do him any good? It didn't. So I kind of wonder what Batman was hoping to accomplish there. And uh, they're avoiding the Omega effect. You know, Darkseid is supposed to have pinpoint accuracy, and it's kind of shown that he can move the Omega beams in whichever way he wants, if they can turn corners and go around furniture and stuff like that. But somehow these three human superheroes who do not have the gift of super speed are able to get out of the way. Okay. So, but while that's happening, guess what? Darkseid is off to Apocalypse with Wonder Woman. Maybe for a shotgun wedding. I don't know. Now, I touched on this before. Diana really should have known that Steve was an imposter just by the way he was treating her. Again, I can't really emphasize anymore that we don't know what Steve would know ordinarily, but we do know what Darkseid does not know. Darkseid does not know about Diana Prince, and I'm just getting tired of hearing myself talk about that, so I'm going to move on to the next point. Just knowing what Steve knows would really be a benefit to the viewer here. So now uh, Batman, Robin, and Cyborg are reporting into Superman, and for a minute, the animation has slipped as Superman's S is backwards, but that is corrected pretty quickly. And you say this imposter was actually Darkseid? I suspected the worst when Cyborg told me about the glow around Trevor's eyes. Boy, he really trashed this place. Luckily, the TC-7 wasn't damaged. It's scheduled to be launched this morning. Looks like we have a double rescue mission on Apocalypse. Apocalypse? Ah, oh, my favorite place. I suggest we develop our game plan back at the Hall of Justice. Let's go. Hmm, I still don't get it. Why did Darkseid wait so long to take Wonder Woman? Could he have been after something else? But they have noticed that the TC-7 is undamaged, but don't think anything of it. At least, no one except Batman really thinks anything of it. The season is going to great lengths to showcase Batman's intelligence. He's been a step ahead of his colleagues in several episodes so far, and he's thinking ahead while no one is concerned about the way Darkseid is behaving. You know, Batman suspects that they're missing something, and the animation shows him looking at the TC-7 satellite, which we, the viewer, know has been replaced by Darkseid. And uh, the fake one is being launched into space, uh, unbeknownst to everyone. So the team is going to Apocalypse, and Darkseid has a pair of prisoners, Steve and Wonder Woman. And I like how Steve is uh, showing no fear. You know, this is... Uh, an alien that can end him in an instant, and he is uh, mouthing off with reckless abandon. So apparently uh, this uh, molecular uh, reconfigurator turns Darkseid back into himself. He has no further need to uh, appear to be Steve Trevor, so he will go back to looking like himself. Darkseid's plan is to put another one of these uh, devices into the fake TC-7 satellite, and it will reconfigure everyone on Earth into parademons, which would definitely advance Darkseid's cause. If you need some shock troops, the best thing you can do is put a reconfigurator up in space. So the absence of narration is welcome, and the show is doing a much better job of showing and not telling, as we don't have the narration telling us what Darkseid's plan is. We can clearly see the animation showing us that the uh, reconfigurator is uh, changing humanity into parademons. Well, it's actually not doing it. It's showing us, uh, as Darkseid speaks, the animation is showing us what would happen. It's clear that it has not happened yet. So Steve uh, does some more mouthing off and gets turned into an ape. You know, that's usually what happens when you uh, mouth off too much. You get turned into a giant monkey. 
And that makes Wonder Woman angry, and she charges at him in uh, with reckless abandon, and uh, the uh, reconfigurator turns her into an ice or a crystal. Either way, she's frozen stiff, and her anger and brashness do her no good, and she's going to need some extra rescuing, mainly because she let her emotions get the better of her. But really, in that situation, who wouldn't? You know, you see your loved one is turned into an ape. Granted, that's never happened to me. But I'm pretty sure I'd be angry if it ha- if someone turned uh, someone I loved into an ape. I hope to never have to uh, find out, but, you know, you never know. So here comes the superpowers team under the cover of smoke as they uh, boom tube into uh, the palace. And uh, Cyborg has been here before. He knows the place. And uh, Batman finds a sewer for them to enter. And not only does it amaze me that Apocalypse has sewers, but I can't get over the idea of running water on Apocalypse. You would think it's so hot there that the water would just evaporate leaving the whole place pretty uh, dry and desolate. So they uh, find Darkseid's garbage disposal, and uh, no one comments uh, about a wonderful smell that was discovered, which just seems to be a lost opportunity. So here is an ape like Steve. He's getting put to work in the uh, garbage disposal facility, and uh, that's kind of where the team is found. And here we've got an action sequence. Heroes versus robots. You can't go wrong here as Batman ropes them, and uh, Superman uh, rocks one with a mighty fist. And uh, even Robin covers some of the whole bunch of asphalt. It's funny how Batman and Robin seem to be uh, the ones to take out multiple robots at once, while the rest of the heroes uh, all are shown begging one each. You know, you would think Superman would uh, would punch a robot out and knock him into at least five others, you know, destroying all of them. But nope, you just see Superman really uh, put the hurt on one of them. So they find the crystallized Wonder Woman, and uh, Cyborg's eyepiece must be able to see the reconfigurators after effects as he determines that it, this is Wonder Woman. He sees an aura around the uh, the crystalline figure, which tells him that the real Wonder Woman is underneath it. So uh, Firestorm fires the collar back, which causes him to drop Wonder Woman, and uh, she nearly crashes to the ground before Superman catches her. And uh, Firestorm does something interesting here. He kind of blows collar back up like a balloon, and there he goes, uh, floats, floating to the top. He must have uh, fed Darkseid's son uh, fizzy lifting drinks or something like that. So just as uh, the sod is about to declare victory for some reason, the team shows up and uh, Robin puts the sod in the net, you know, because the sod is an idiot. And then the rest of it pretty much goes by the numbers. They find the ray, they free Wonder Woman, save both her and Steve, until Darkseid engulfs everyone in red sun energy to prevent Superman from using his powers. And apparently this uh, prevents anyone else from doing anything useful either, because all the useful stuff has already been done. You see, Superman gets the last laugh as if... You're paying close attention, and you really don't have to pay that close attention to uh, see it. Batman narrates what he's doing as he's doing it. He grabs a gate transmitter off of Calabac as he's floating to the top, and somehow Superman gets it. Since he can't escape from the Red Sun uh, force field, he kind of transmits the satellite to a point where it fires on the castle instead of Earth, destroying the lab. So turnabout is only fair. The uh, reconfigurator has destroyed something on Apocalypse. Not on Earth. And I love how Darkseid is kind of yelling at the superpower team at how they will pay for this. Of course, before he realizes they're gone, they boomed right out of there and uh, they're not going to wait for uh, his villainous monologue. So back at the hall, everyone is glad that they've won and have a transmitter, which of course self-destructed in Superman's hand. And and it didn't dawn on me until the end of the episode that Darkseid still has the real TC7 satellite. At least not until somebody said so. The episode implies that they're going to go back and get it, but we're never going to see that. I wonder if that's something that happened, uh, you know, as they were writing the script. 
you know, somebody realized, oh, crap, we didn't uh, get the satellite back. And uh, they just wrote in a quick line to cover themselves. Be interesting to know uh, what happened there. But overall, this was a good and enjoyable episode. Dark Side Scheme has thought out enough and get to see Batman play a uh, detective, even if the episode uh, doesn't really pay it off. You know, they suspect something's wrong, but nobody figures out that the satellite is part of the problem. They don't realize that the uh, fake satellite comes into play until the villains tell them what the fake satellite has done or is going to do. So, but a good episode. I really enjoyed that. Right now, I'm going to take another break, play another promo. Then when I come back, the fear. Hang around, folks. Good afternoon, Mr. President. Sorry I've been away so long. I won't let you down again. It's finally here. Coming to the Fire and Water Podcast Network. General? Would you care to step outside? It's Superman 2 Movie Minute. Chris Franklin and Rob Kelly are back to discuss 1980's Superman 2, five minutes at a time. Superman faces his toughest challenge when he squares off against Lex Luthor and three villains from the planet Krypton. Superman 2 Movie Minute, proud member of the Fire and Water Podcast Network. Man, this is going to be good. All right, welcome back, folks. We're going to finish this episode off with The Fear. And this was written by Alan Burnett. Had an original broadcast date of October 2nd, 1985. And our synopsis is brought to you by SupermanHomePage.com, your number one source for Superman information on the web. Batman and Robin discover the Scarecrow using a fear transmitter to stop guards at a robbery. Robin temporarily suffers the fear of heights. Then Scarecrow is chased into an alley where Batman is overcome by fear. It just doesn't add up, boss. The Batman ain't afraid of anything. Idiot, I know fear when I see it, and something about that alley frightened him, horrified him. What, what, what could it be? Whatever it is, I'll use it to bring Batman to his knees. Later, Bruce Wayne explains to Dick and Diana Prince that the crime alley was where his parents died. As crazy as it sounds, that's what's been troubling me so much. You afraid of an alley? I can't believe it. I can hardly believe it myself, but it's true. You see, Crime Alley wasn't always called Crime Alley. Years ago, it was part of a fashionable neighborhood. Did you like the movie, son? Oh, yeah, Dad. That Robin Hood was something else. Oh, dear, it looks like rain. Come on, we'll take a shortcut through this alley. No, I, I don't want to. Well, there's nothing to be afraid of, Bruce. It's only the dark. But I was frightened. Very frightened. And then we saw him. <gasps> this is a stick-up. Give me your purse, lady. Oh, no! You heard me. Keep your hands off my wife. so I found myself alone in the world. A boy who secretly screamed for justice. It's uh, time to go home, Master Bruce. From that day forward, I vowed to avenge my parents' fate by devoting my life to fighting crime. I worked hard at it. 
building my body. Pushing myself to the limit. My word! And I studied too, countless hours. I learned that criminals are a cowardly lot which gave me the idea to wear a disguise that would strike fear in their hearts. But what disguise? And then the answer came to me, like an omen. And so I became Batman, the man with no fear. Except for one, the fear of the place where I lost the two people I loved most. I hadn't been back since that terrible night. I never realized that that was the same place. I'm... I'm so sorry, Batman. We'll just have to stay away from that alley from now on. No, he won't. I've got to conquer my fear of that place once and for all. The Scarecrow again uses the fear of the alley to stop Batman and ends up kidnapping Robin and Wonder Woman. To save them, Batman must overcome his fear and smash an improved transmitter before the other heroes arrive to help arrest the Scarecrow and his gang. No! No! Get me down from here! <laughs> That's one scared scarecrow. He should feel quite relieved once he's behind bars. So will all of Gotham City. I have been looking forward to this episode for a long time. At one point when I started covering the Super Friends, I must have come across a note somewhere that there would eventually be an episode that covered basically Batman's origin story. And I've always been really curious about how this show would depict the death of the Waynes. This is a kid's cartoon. People dying is just something that doesn't happen. But I'm going to go into this episode completely, as I always do. Technically, this is not an, an adventure of Superman, and I probably wouldn't normally dedicate a whole segment to this, but since it's a Batman story, but this is good enough. This episode deserves it. So, all the Superman fans listening to me are just going to have to bear with me. This episode didn't disappoint, despite the fact that the Scarecrow has never really been one of my uh, favorite Batman villains. The Batman Begins did him well enough that I reconsidered him a little bit, but there are still other villains uh, out there that I prefer more. Probably uh, teaming him up with one of my favorite Batman villains, Ra's al Ghul, helped, but on his own, uh, the types of stories that the Scarecrow... Uh, tends to be a part of, are usually not my thing. But, that being said, Batman who inspires fear is a very interesting foil being uh, somebody who uses fear as a weapon in a different fashion. So anyway, as far as this episode goes, it starts with the Scarecrow kind of coming off a truck. And of course, uh, he has a gang of uh, straw men as his, uh, as his gang. Very, uh, I've read a, a bunch of uh, pre-crisis Batman comics. Not nearly enough to really be considered educated on these things, but it just seems as though the uh, themed uh, henchman seems very uh, 1960s uh, Adam West TV show. The comics of the time could have something similar, but I don't know personally. And really, the Scarecrow has never really been somebody I associate with having a gang. Normally, he's... Uh, and again, this is probably more of a product of me reading modern comics, is that normally he is... Uh, I'm used to him being out there by himself. And apparently, his uh, fear toxin... Is a beam of red light, so it's not really a toxin, it's a hypnotizing ray, it's a transmitter. And he uses it to instill the, the fear of lizards in uh, his victims. 
Normally, the uh, Scarecrow would paralyze people with their own fears, as his gas, or in this case, transmitter, would expose them to what they're afraid of. Like, if somebody is afraid of uh, spiders, you know, you would think being hit with the transmitter would make them uh, be surrounded by a whole bunch of of spiders or something like that. But, nope, he is uh, transmitting specific fears to people. So, Batman and Robin have faced Scarecrow before, and he's using electronics to enhance the power of his transmitter. And the Batman and Robin arrive, and he uses the uh, device on them. And it, it paralyzes Robin, uh, aggravating a, a fear of heights. But Batman overcomes it immediately. And it's nice to see that at least the Scarecrow knows he can't outrun Batman. And apparently, uh, Scarecrow, at least that's the way I interpreted it, has different transmitters for different fears. But I'm kind of wa- wondering at first, uh, what happened to Batman here? Why did he suddenly uh, become fearful of this location? And at first I wondered if it was something the Scarecrow did, but the next scene reveals that it wasn't, as uh, the Scarecrow seemed just as surprised as anybody else that Batman had a fear of this particular place, which is Crime Alley. Now, Batman should not be afraid of Crime Alley. I don't think this is something that was ever in the comics. Something This sounds like something that was contrived for this episode. I mean, I've read that Batman returns to Crime Alley quite a bit, because he kind of pays special attention to that area because... It is where his parents were murdered. Now, what was it? Uh, Max Allen Collins' uh, book, which no one ever said a Max, a- Max Allen Collins Batman story was very good, but there was one book I remember vividly where it was early post-crisis, recently covered on uh, Batman Nightcast over on the Fire and Water Network, where on the anniversary of his parents' death, Batman would just kind of take a stroll through Crime Alley, and uh, apparently everybody knew that it was uh, that day. So, but anyway, back to this story. Which is a lot better than the one I'm talking about. So, Batman, to me, being afraid of the location of Crime Alley just does not ring true with everything that I know about Batman. So, uh, Bruce Wayne is throwing a policeman's ball, and uh, Jonathan Crane is helping on the Scarecrow case. And this is where I wonder, has Batman had limited success with the Scarecrow in the past? You would think that if uh, Batman was able to catch the Scarecrow, he would be easily revealed to be Jonathan Crane. The fact that nobody seems to know that Crane is the Scarecrow, seems to imply that the Scarecrow was never caught. So Dick is kind of hiding from the uh, policeman's ball. He's avoiding the commissioner's niece. I believe Barbara Gordon, a Batgirl, was uh, Gordon's niece at the time uh, that he was raising for some reason. Maybe uh, if Dave has read enough Batman comics of this era, maybe Dave can fill me in on what's going on with that. But as of this recording, I do not know. But I'm really amazed that Dick doesn't know the importance of Crime Alley to Batman. And that's when Wonder Woman shows up and uh, Bruce realizes that, yeah, maybe now it's time uh, he tells that story. And the uh, this indicates that the Wayne saw Robin Hood as opposed to Zorro on the night they were killed. The alley is sufficiently spooky and, you know, in every depiction where the Waynes just walk down this dark alley, it always blows my mind that they even would. I wouldn't. And I have nothing worth killing for. Now, this is right out of the comic, except they don't show the gunshots. The lightning bolts and the thunder kind of substitute for the gunshots. We don't see the Waynes get shot and killed in this episode, which basically gives Batman's origin story, which is right out of the comics, almost word for word, right down to the the Joe Chill, the uh, murderer, saying, this is a stick-up pal, which he does in the comics. So this Batman never goes to Crime Alley, and... Now he's resolved to conquer his fear because he has it. Because now he knows about it. 
apparently in all of his time with Batman, and to be honest, we don't know how long that's been, he has never even gone there by accident until right now. So that's very interesting. And Adam West is mostly known for, you know, the campies, the campy 60s animated show. Adam West does a great job with a darker Batman here. This is a very dark story for this show. And I'll be totally honest, I'm kind of surprised that it got through. But it did, and I'm pretty sure we're the better for it. This is really a landmark episode as far as I'm concerned. So the Scarecrow is back in Crime Alley, and so are Batman and Robin, and the Scarecrow uses his transmitter to elevate Batman's fear, and while Batman is distracted, Robin is captured. And Robin's uh, transmitter says JLA on it, which is probably the only reference to Justice League that we're ever going to see in this season. So Wonder Woman shows up in time to save Batman, as it looked like uh, Scarecrow was about to capture him, but not Robin. Wonder Woman is apparently not afraid of the uh, transmitter. And it's interesting the choice to use Wonder Woman here in this episode. There's a part of me that would would have preferred to see see Superman here, as they have a long history as the quote-unquote world's finest team. The history with Wonder Woman is somewhat less. I mean, you could swap out Wonder Woman for Superman, and really, nothing has to change. But they used Wonder Woman, and that pretty much is that. If I were writing this, I probably would have used Superman, but whatever. It is what it is, right? So Batman is interrogating one of the one of the straw men and getting right in his face. Where is he? Where's Scarecrow? No, please don't ask. Interrogation will do no good. Apparently, Scarecrow has given his straw men post-hypnotic suggestions which trigger their deepest fears if they attempt to betray him. That is what he's done to you, isn't it? You can tell me. No, no, don't. I, no, 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 I can't. No, no. See what I mean? He'll talk under the influence of my magic lasso. As an officer of the court, I can't allow that. You might cause the poor fellow irreparable damage. You better call the Hall of Justice for help. Meanwhile, I'm going to search every square inch of Gotham City, if necessary, to find Robin. And like I said, not something I'm used to seeing on this show. This is, at the time this was written, this was 1985, we either moving toward crisis or into crisis already in the comics, but Batman was getting darker in the Bronze Age. He was getting a little more, you know, quote-unquote realistic. But, and this is the most comic book-like Batman I've ever seen on this show. Or on any show, really. So, Crane now lures Wonder Woman into a cramped closet and turns a fear transmitter on her. Wonder Woman didn't fall for the first transmitter, but apparently this one is exacerbating a fear of enclosed spaces. So, I don't know why she uh, didn't fall for the first transmitter and then, and now this one, but I don't know. So now we're at a desolate house in the middle of nowhere. Very spooky. And the Scarecrow has a new transmitter, this one with a bat on it. And so with the team nowhere to be found, and Dr. Crane working for and against the police at the same time, Batman is on his own, until a crow shows up with a map. Here, Batman finds Wonder Woman and Robin bound to some posts. Robin is tied up almost as though he's crucified, and uh, apparently you can, uh, in order to weaken Wonder Woman, you gotta fuse her bracelets together. And apparently Scarecrow knew that enough to take her powers away. And so when he finds him, Scarecrow has a transmitter on the head of a Scarecrow, and it's making Batman think he's in Crime Alley. And Batman is paralyzed with fear. And while Batman is kind of writhing on the ground in absolute fear, they're all about to be run over with a harvester, which would not be good for them. This time, Batman overcomes his fear, punches the transmitter, 
and destroys the harvester with a few close batarang throws. And and then now the rest of it is just easy pickings for the rest of the superpowers team who shows up and all of a sudden then takes care of business. Which seems to me like overkill. Batman could have handled these guys easily enough now that he has faced his fear, but nope. We have superheroes making light work of the straw men. You know, and Batman's going face to face with the scarecrow. It's only right that Batman faces down the scarecrow. And again, I really like Adam West playing this kind of foreboding Batman. I'm, I wish we could have seen more of this. Lots of good Batman imagery here as a Batman as Scarecrow is uh, pinned to the wall in fear, ironically. Batman's shadow just rises over him. This episode really leans heavily into that Batman imagery that's uh, so prevalent in the comics. And Batman uh, showed his brain. He figured out that Crane was a Scarecrow because the crow that brought the map didn't take its eyes off Crane in the commissioner's office. Your fear career is over. Not quite, Batman. <laughs> Guess again. <laughs> Thanks to you, I've broken through my one and only fear, Scarecrow. Or should I say, Professor Crane? <laughs> the Amazon must have told you. Actually, a little bird did. You see, I realized on the way here that the crow never took its eyes off you while it was inside the commissioner's office. After summoning my superpowers friends, I radioed the police of my suspicions. They're looking for you even as we speak, Professor. Shoo, shoo, get off me, you vile creature. Well, I guess we just have to go with that. And the episode ends with Batman having faced his fear and defeated the Scarecrow. So again, this was a great episode. The darkest episode of the show yet. You know, a little more adult than you used to see from the Super Friends. And I really appreciate this show taking the time out to tell this story. At this point, nobody had really told it outside of the comics. Now it's been told ad nauseum. But well done. Well done. So next time, uh, I'm going to start off with The Wild Cards. And then two shorts, Brainchild and The Case of the Stolen Superpowers. Until then, if you want to leave feedback, it's always welcome. Manascreen at gmail.com. If you want to join the conversation over at the Facebook group, just put Manascreen Podcast in your search feed and the show should come up. You can also find the show on Twitter at Manascreencast. Till next time, folks, we're all on the same team. Good night. The Manascreen Podcast is produced by Mike Zemo. And all opinions expressed on the show are those of Mike Zemo and his guests and no one else. All music and sound clips used on the show are for review purposes only and no copyright infringement is intended. All music and sound clips are copyright their original copyright owners. The Man of Scream is a member of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network and can be found at www.twotruefreaks.com. Email to this show can be sent to manofscreen at gmail.com. And you can also leave the show a review on iTunes. That will help others find the show. Thank you for listening to the Man of Screen Podcast.